I, as I said, I'm going to ask you to do something again a little different. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the word together this morning, and you can follow along. Beginning there in the fifth chapter of Titus, and our, our title this morning is Gospel Leadership, and I think you'll see that clearly as we go through this. Paul writes, to, to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of God, of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. <laughs> Do you get the idea Paul didn't like these people? Uh, but remember, this is the word of God for us today. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And I pray this morning, Father, that as we study it together, that it'll be clear and we'll understand it. And most of all, Lord, we'll receive it, we'll hear it, we'll believe it. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Paul left Titus on the island of, Greek, of Crete to appoint elders in every city where they had been traveling, where they had been uh, evangelizing and leading people to faith in Jesus Christ and there were churches being planted and each of these churches needed elders. Now, you may say, well, you know, we really don't need to study that here at First SF because we don't have elders. Well, I want to try to make it really clear to you as we begin this morning to see exactly why this passage is so important for First Baptist San Francisco right now in the life of this church, okay? And to do that, uh, go ahead and put that next, next slide up. To do that, uh, I, I want to give you a little Greek lesson. Now, you know, our pastors learn really early. Sometimes when you mention Greek in church, sometimes people's eyes just glaze over. Uh, I don't, don't, don't let that happen because I want you to see when we talk about this office in the church that here is called elders, what I want you to see is that in the New Testament, there are three words that are used at various times to apply to this office, okay? First is the word poimain. Now, I've written that out to the left. That's the Greek word. 
And the way it's translated in our English Bibles, various translations, is pastor and shepherd. In the, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It's used both ways. Um, and it's used in both a noun form and a verb form. You can be a shepherd or you can shepherd. You can be a pastor or you can pastor people, okay? The next word is episkopos. What does that sound like to you? Episcopal, Episcopalian, okay? And that's where they get the name, they get this. And it's translated primarily in all of our translations that most of us use today. It's translated as overseer. In the old King James, it was translated as bishop, but that's just one word, episkopos. And then the third word is presbyteros. What does that sound like? Presbyterian, okay? That's where they get the word is from this Greek word presbyteros. And by the way, I didn't say this, but episkopos is like poimen. It can be either, either a noun form or a verb form. You can be an overseer or you can oversee something, okay? Now presbyteros is elder and that really only has one form. It's used and that only has a noun form. There's no verb form to the word presbyteros. You can be an elder, but nobody ever talks about eldering anything, okay? So what do we learn from that? We learn that all three of these words, and by the way, there are a couple of places, we won't take time to look at them, but in Acts 20, when Paul is with uh, the elders from Ephesus, and in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, in those two places, all three of these terms are used together at the same time, and they're applying to this office that we're talking about in the church, in the local church, okay? So what we see from that is that the primary noun form of this is the word elder, so when we talk about this office in the church, we're talking about someone who, quote, is an elder who pastors or shepherds and who oversees. And that's the office that we're talking about. One of the things that I think that's unquestionable by this that has specific application to First Baptist Church of San Francisco is this, that the office of senior pastor, poimen, senior pastor in this church that person is an elder. Do you agree? He's an overseer, right? So he's an episkopos. He's a shepherd. So he's a poimen, a pastor. He's an elder in the church. So when we talk about what we're going to look at here, beginning in verse 6, we're looking at the qualifications for an elder. So what we're looking for, here we go, are the qualifications that the Bible gives us for your new senior pastor, okay? Now, one thing I wanna say to the whole congregation and specifically to the pastor search team, if you're on the pastor search team, raise your hand right now. Hello, don't be shy, okay? They're all hiding at the moment. One of, our, one of the things we tend to do is when, when you look at a profile for a new pastor, and by the way, these are, this is not the only place where there's a list of qualifications. There's also one in 1 Timothy 3, and these two places in the New Testament. Uh, what you'll see on a profile for a new pastor is the first line is always meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And then there's this long list of other things that we think he ought to be like. And the tendency, sadly, too often is 
to just kind of give lip service and quickly pass over the biblical qualifications and spend all the time on comparing the candidate to the list of what we think the senior pastor ought to be like, right? So I want to exhort the pastor search committee team and, and, and the whole church, don't rush past these biblical qualifications. These are the most important things to consider when we're looking for a new senior pastor, okay? So that's a big, long introduction to say why studying this passage today is important for this church. We're looking for someone who meets these qualifications. So let's, let's move through them together, okay? First of all, let's see who an elder is, all right? Who an elder is, and the first part of this deals with his personal character. Now, there's an overarching qualification that seems to be the primary one in Paul's mind. Look at verse 6. He says, if anyone is above reproach, then if you go down to verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So twice he mentions this one qualification to be above reproach. It's, it's an overarching characteristic of the life of the pastor of the church. What that above reproach means literally is that he's blameless. Now, please don't hear when you hear the word blameless, please don't hear that saying sinless. If that were what it meant, then we wouldn't have any pastors because all of us are sinners, amen? I mean, so we're not looking for, for someone who's reached that stage <coughs> of sinless perfection. <laughs> in fact, I hope you agree with me. We don't really even believe in sinless perfectionism. There are those. Uh, I, I just thought of a, a guy I knew years ago, uh, and he, he had come to this point in his own life where he believed in sinless perfectionism, that it was possible for a Christian <laughs> to get to a point where they never sinned. And he said to me, in fact, I have not sinned in three years. <laughs> and I said, you just blew it. <laughs> because you lied. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not trying to judge him, but I, we all are sinners all the time. And praise God, Jesus died for us to be forgiven of those sins. And we thank the Lord for that. What it means to be above reproach means that there's no charge that will stick. That there's nothing this person is known for or guilty of that's wrong, that's sinful. And, and, and it can take root and, and you can find that out. Um, it, it, it doesn't mean sinless. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're going to find someone who's never criticized. Part of being a pastor is, is you're going to get criticized. I mean, that just, that just comes with the territory. We all know that. I mean, I know it's hard for you to believe, but, but some people don't even like interim pastors. You know, as sweet and lovable as they are. Oh, uh, right. Uh, you cannot listen. Every one of us could always find something wrong with somebody. It's just that way. But that's not what God's called us to do. Amen? So, 
This is not so much a standard for one's own personal assessment, but rather it reflects the assessment of the community of the church. In other words, how does the body of Christ see this person? Do we see that person as above reproach? Now, let's go from that personal character to personal relationships. And it begins here in verse six with what I think Paul has put first because of, of the importance of this. The first is in, is in the, uh, uh, the family the, the, and the marriage of this pastor. He says, um, the husband of one wife. Now, boy, that's one we could spend some time on because people have so many ideas about what that means. Let me suggest some things that that doesn't mean. When Paul says, your pastor should be the husband of one wife, the first thing is that does not rule out single men. It doesn't automatically rule out single men. It does, when it says the husband of one wife, it's not talking about you have to have one wife. If that were true, then Paul and Titus would have been disqualified from being elders. Okay, so it's not saying that. It's not saying, for instance, this does not rule out a widower who has remarried. Are you with me? He was married to his wife. His wife died and now he's remarried, so he's had two wives. Uh-oh, he's not the husband of one wife. No, that's not what it's talking about, okay? It doesn't automatically, and I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. We can come back to it later if necessary. It doesn't automatically rule out someone who's divorced and remarried. If there was a, there, there are a few and a very small number of biblical grounds for divorce. Um, and, and so it doesn't automatically rule someone out in that. So those are the things it's not talking about. What it's literally talking about, the, the wording in the original language, the literal phrasing in our language would be this person is a one woman kind of man. He's not flirtatious. He's not someone who, um, certainly is not someone who's known to have been unfaithful if he's married to his wife uh, and that sort of thing. A, a man who is committed to his wife and lives uh, in honesty and faithfulness and devotion to his spouse if he's married. And the second part of that is not only his marriage, but as a parent. And he goes on to say, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now again, that doesn't mean that the pastor has to have children. It's just saying if he does have children, these things are true about them. And one of the things that, I, that, that we need to focus on here is that this word children is plural. I, I don't think... What this is calling for is scrutiny of every individual child at every point. And if you've got, for instance, I had five children. Uh, so someone could look at my five children and they could say, well, you know, four of them are okay, but this one, eh, I don't know about that. You know, and, and you'd be right. Uh, <laughs> and I could tell you which one, I mean... Uh, at various times, it might be one of uh, each of them. But anyway, that's not what this is calling for. It's calling for a, it's showing a picture of the family as a whole. Is this a believing family? Is, are they believers? And, and understand when it says that his children are believers, remember it's talking about a qualification. 
And so the temptation would be for us to get the idea that it's somehow possible for the dad in the family to make the kids believers. Only God can make a believer. Okay? So keep that in mind. The idea is how does he lead? In another place it says, uh, in 1 Timothy, it uses the phrase, he manages his home well. It doesn't mean that he never has problems in his home. He never has problems with his kids. The question is, how does he manage that? How does he keep that together in an honorable way before the Lord? So that's family. That's personal character. Now let's talk about personal conduct. And what Paul does here is in verses seven and eight, he gives us a list of negatives and then he gives us a list of positives talking about the personal conduct of the senior pastor, okay? Keep in mind, that's what we're talking about. Now, I didn't say this earlier, but let me just say, if you took the church survey about what the church needs in a senior pastor, this is what you should have put. (laughs) All these qualifications are what you should have put, okay? These are primary, okay? So these are some ways that things that he's not like, and then there's some things that he is like. Look at verse seven. First of all, he is not arrogant. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. The word literally means self-pleasing. He's only concerned about himself. You don't want someone who's like that. He's not quick-tempered. Literally, it says, soon angry. (laughs) He's not always looking for a fight. Anytime someone criticizes or says something against him or disagrees with him, that sort of thing, he gets pugnacious and wants to argue about it. Uh, He's not, it says here literally in the English, it says he's not a drunkard. Now the word, the the literal phrase there, the word does not, it's not our word, it's drunkard. What it literally is, is this person is not given to wine. So it it includes drunkenness, obviously. But it it means a a person who's, I'm not sure how to say it exactly, but it means a person who's one of his primary focuses in life is how much he drinks. (laughs) Does Does that make sense? Not given to wine. He has other other places that he's more concerned about. He's not violent. Now, quick-tempered meant soon angry. Here, next it says he's not violent. That means he's not, literally, he's not a striker. He's not pugnacious. This is someone who wants to physically physically fight. I I, I had a pastor friend one time who... (laughs) Uh, you know, he thought better of it later, but he was in a church business meeting and a man in the church got up and just attacked him and then attacked his wife, you know, verbally. And my pastor friend shouldn't have done it, but my pastor friend stood up and invited him out into the parking lot. <laughs> I'd like to say I'm too spiritual to do that, but I'm also too chicken to do that. <laughs> you know? But you're not looking for a pastor like that. You don't want someone who's pugnacious. Then it says he's not greedy for gain. A pastor should not be a pastor for what he can get out of it materially and monetarily. The church ought to take care of the pastor. Don't misunderstand. But we should not be in it for the money, so to speak. And then he turns to the positives. Verse 8. First, it says he should be hospitable. You're probably familiar with that word. It it literally means stranger love. 
And it means that someone who opens their home to others, who invites others in and, and is kind and helpful to them. And next, a lover of good. He loves what is good, especially for other people. You want a, you want a pastor who rejoices when you rejoice. That sort of thing. He's self-controlled. Now, let me just say, Paul's thinking about self-controlled is all through this little book of Titus. If you look over in chapter two, verse two, he, tell, he tells us that the older men need to be self-controlled. Then in verse five, he says the young women need to be self-controlled. Excuse me, yes, is that verse five? Yes, verse five. And then in verse six, he says the younger men are to be self-controlled. And then down in verse 12, he says that we're all to live self-controlled. So if every one of us as a part of the church is supposed to live a self-controlled life, who we need leading us and shepherding us is someone who's self-controlled in their own life. That's what your pastor ought to be like. He should be upright. That word means righteous. He does right. He lives out the gospel. He should be holy, Paul says. That means he's a spiritual man. He's Christ-like in what he does. And, and, and I, you know, this, this, this particular characteristic, uh, sometimes we people can be guilty of being pharisaical in that we decide what holiness looks like and if somebody doesn't measure up to what our standard of holiness looks like, then they're not, we accuse them and judge them as not being holy. Paul is saying, this man should be like Christ. He should walk in biblical holiness in his life. Then it says, you want someone who's disciplined, who's disciplined, who rigorously applies the gospel in his life. So all of those characteristics, both negative and positive, that's what you're looking for. That's what you want in a senior pastor. Now, we've looked at who an elder is, or a pastor is. Let's look at who an elder or pastor or overseer, what they do, what a pastor does. And it's all in one verse, verse nine, okay? There are three areas here that we're gonna see. First, gospel living, then gospel teaching, then gospel protecting. All of this comes under this heading of gospel leadership, the leadership of the pastor of the church. Look at verse nine. First of all, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That's gospel living. These qualifications that we've talked about, they're not just for something in his quiet time as a pastor, just for him personally and him alone. A pastor must be seen to be living out the truth of the gospel in his own life as an example to others. You want a pastor who is an example to you of living out the gospel. You want to be able to see the difference that God has made in the life of this man. And you want that to be very clear. That's the gospel living, that he truly lives out the good news of Jesus Christ, the doctrine, the gospel of the Lord. So that, he goes on to say, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Do you see that? You want a man who can live out the truth of the gospel so that he can teach others the truth of the gospel. 
I think we would all agree. If we had a pastor who stood here and opened his Bible and tried to teach you the word of God on Sunday morning, and then you knew that during the week he was not living this out in his own life, you probably wouldn't pay much attention to what he had to say on Sunday morning, right? And Paul is saying that's the way it is and that's the way it should be. He says he, he should live out the gospel, he should hold firm to the trustworthy word, so that in order that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. This is what I'm calling gospel teaching. You, you live out gospel living so that you can give gospel teaching to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does a pastor live as an example of sound doctrine, but he teaches that it is not his godly living that has made him acceptable to God. The sound doctrine or the gospel is that he is what he is by the grace of God. Paul said that by the grace of God, I am what I am. Your pastor should make it clear to you that every one of us are who we are in the sight of God only by his grace, not by anything in us. <coughs> we don't earn righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of our own. Our righteousness, as the Bible says, is as filthy rags before God. When, when we stand before God without Jesus Christ and we stand before God, he doesn't see us, and I'm, well, now I'm so thankful for this. <laughs> he doesn't see us as just this person with this one little tiny mark on us. He sees all, us all as unrighteous, as sinners. But what God did for us in Jesus Christ when he shed his blood at the cross for us he paid the penalty of our sins so that when we repent of our sin and we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we are clothed in the righteousness of God. And he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. You want a pastor who makes that very, very clear to you all the time and keeps reminding you of that all the time. Which leads to the third characteristic of what a pastor does. He lives out the gospel, he teaches the gospel. And the third characteristic is gospel protecting. Gospel protecting, okay? Notice what Paul says. Rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke those who contradict it. I'm going to kind of move through these last two verses fairly quickly because all of this from, from verse 10 through verse 16, Paul is describing those who need to be rebuked in verse 9. Those who are contradicting sound doctrine. Those who are contradicting the gospel. Those who are teaching false doctrine. Those who are seeking to lead God's people away from the truth of the word of God. And notice what he says about them. First of all, they're teaching unsound doctrine. Verse 10, for there are many who are unsubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now the circumcision party were those people that were, were commonly called the Judaizers. The bottom line of what they taught, among many things that was wrong, but they claimed to be Christians, but what they said was, just being a Christian is not enough. 
you have to be a Jew also in order to be right with God. So it was Jesus plus being a Jew, okay? Now look at that real closely. Jesus plus being a Jew. When we're talking about being accepted to God, Jesus plus anything is false doctrine. Let's be clear about that. Well, you need to, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to carry out this practice that we do also. That, that's what cults are made of. Cults always add things. And the things that they add quickly and very obviously become more important than the basic things. So these Judaizers, this circumcision party were coming in and teaching unsound doctrine. And what they were doing was they were harming the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has, has well said that uh, damaged doctrine damages people. Damaged doctrine damages people. Notice Paul said they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. So they're harming others with this unsound doctrine. And the reason is they have dangerous motives. These motives, here it says, they're doing this for shameful gain. Now, we just saw earlier that one of the things you don't want a pastor to think about is that he's, he wants to be a pastor for what he can get out of it in the terms of monetary things. These people, these false teachers were doing that same thing. They were, their motive was to get shameful gain by teaching the things that they should not have been teaching. Now, I want to point out something that Paul said, and he said it twice here. He said uh, in verse 10 that a pastor ought to be able to rebuke those who contradict the doctrine, the sound doctrine, the gospel, okay? Notice in verse 11 what he said. He said, they must be silenced. And then look down in verse 13. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. Now I would be willing to say that finding a man who has the ability to silence false teachers and rebuke false teachers is probably not one of the things you spend a lot of time thinking about. Now understand, a person needs to do that in a way that honors the Lord. You, you, you don't want somebody who's just angry and, and in a fighting spirit about that. But I'll tell you my experience as a pastor. Some of the most, some of the times I have received as a pastor, the worst criticism of the, of the times that I've been criticized is when I would share when teaching about particular doctrine or something, when I would warn the flock about the teachings of other groups. When I would warn the flock about those people who knock on your door, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, others. It always, it always came out in almost exactly the same way. Well, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't talk about anybody else. You should just tell us what we believe. No, Paul says right here. Paul says right here. You rebuke those who contradict the sound doctrine of the gospel. 
not in an unloving way, but in a way that guards the flock. That's what Paul told the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, guard the flock. Watch this, guard the flock that was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. When I I stand here as a pastor and preach the word to you, when your new pastor comes and stands here and preaches the word to you, he is talking to a flock that has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. What an awe, awesome responsibility that is. Now notice, I'm gonna gonna go on down. My time is running out here. Uh, Look at verse 16. These false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. (laughs) They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, some people are going to hear that and they're going to say, wait a minute, that kind of sounds like a works-based salvation. No, that's gospel. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, For grace are you saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Very clear, right? But what does the next verse say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. To say it as simply as I know how, we don't do good works in order to get saved, we do good works because we are saved. And if we're not living out the gospel, then it says something about our salvation. They deny him by their works. Do you know what Paul was saying about these false teachers? They weren't making the gospel look good. (laughs) 